Sound familiar? Here's a hint. It started out as a proposed sequel to the very loud and chaotic Clover Field, but ended up in a very controlled and quiet place. Rarely does sound and its opposite play such a crucial role in storytelling, but in the case of John Krasinski's sci-fi horror, it was central. How about this? Okay, I'm through. Ripley? Yes. Close all the hatches behind me. I'm moving on. The tagline to Ridley Scott's Alien may have told us, in space, no one can hear you scream, but an equally potent fear is heard, and then silenced, by the terror-stricken men aboard U-96 as it slips through the hazardous waters of the North Atlantic during World War II. Released in 1981, Das Boot is Wolfgang Petersen's multi-Oscar-nominated adaptation of Lothar Gunther Bochheim's 1973 novel of the same name. Although a work of fiction, Bochheim was drawing from his wartime experience when he served as a correspondent writing reports and taking photographs for the Nazi party's propaganda unit. With its near-constant pings, dings, rumbles, tumbles, shakes and shudders, the U-boat, or as Bochheim called it, the Iron Coffin, was rarely more than one sonar wipe and depth charge away from destruction. As the caption reads at the very start of the film, of the 40,000 German soldiers who served in the North Atlantic, 30,000 were killed. Or, to quote Bochheim once more, drowned, drowned like surplus cats in a bag. If sound is so central to the film's texture, what is just as unique is the story's location. Theatrically released at a running time of 149 minutes, Pedersen's director's cut of 2008 is a full hour longer, and of those three and a half hours, barely 20 minutes take place on dry land. Which means that for the rest of the film, we are cooked up inside a tin can. And with such a restriction, cinematographer Jost Vacano, production designer Rolf Zehetbauer, and the sound team of Milan Bohr, Trevor Pike and Mike Lemaire transformed the U-96 into a character. The film was released in both subtitled and dubbed versions, and because podcasts don't come with transcripts, we'll play the clips in English. Destroyer coming nearer. Almost above us now. Deeper, Chief, quick. Stop, Lieutenant. The film begins in an unusual way. The screen is green, the actual colour of the deep water in the North Atlantic. Then slowly coming towards us appears a murky shape, and because it's emerging from the green, it has a spectral, almost phantasmagorical quality. 
and from that opening shot, you know things will not end well. We are in a watery grave, and the men are already all but ghosts. But while it is ominously and strikingly eerie, there is something vaguely familiar about it. In fact, we have seen its like before. Only in that instance, the screen was draped in near complete darkness. A few stars twinkle from the depths of space, and then, unexpectedly, a small ship races overhead. That is how George Lucas introduced us to the Imperial Star Destroyer, a colossal, hulking, skull-white battleship, its sharp triangular shape cutting like a weapon and leaving us in no doubt who the villains are. And within minutes, we know who they represent. Darth Vader and his empire are mythic incarnations of Hitler and his Nazi army. Which, of course, is ironic when we apply it to Das Boot. Obviously, Pettersson had to reconfigure our perception. How could he persuade the audience to empathise with the crew of a Nazi U-boat? Yes, they were common sailors thousands of miles away from the death camps, but no matter which way we cut it, they were still fighting for a murderous machine hell-bent on destroying European civilization. Unsubtle, yes, but I wonder what watching Das Boot would be like if you were a descendant of a Holocaust survivor. For a comparison, consider how a Native American feels when watching a classic Western such as My Darling Clementine, High Noon, Shane, or The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Yes, in those films, European settlers are not routing the Sioux Nation. Instead, the conflict is white against white. But that is mainly because the genocide that all but wiped out the great tribes has already happened and the frontier has been settled. Valance couldn't make you run away. What is it now, Pilgrim? Your conscience? Isn't it enough to kill a man with a, without trying to build a life on it? You talk too much. Think too much. Besides, you didn't kill Liberty Valance. To say that the U-boat's crew are so young or naive as not to be ideologues, or indeed know nothing of politics, would be a gross misrepresentation. You are in your 20s, and by virtue of the fact that you are a sentient being, you have absorbed the ideology of your political environment. Within that spectrum, you may be hardline or liberal, but within that environment, you are explicitly aware of the differences between fascism, communism and democracy. The ideology is the air you breathe. Push does not even have to come to shove. Very little is required for you to step out into the street and with your cohort, start chanting slogans. Pedersen cannot be accused of cynically trying to portray the U-boat's crew as noble seamen inadvertently caught up in fascist machinery. But as he embarked on production in 1979, he was nonetheless acutely aware that there were still many covert neo-Nazis lurking around the globe, each of them seeking to find a film that would portray their ideology in a sympathetic light. After all, World War II was still very much in living memory even though that same group denied the truth of the Holocaust. More than that, Peterson also had to fend off American interest in the film. Not too long after Buchheim's novel was published and translated into English, Hollywood began eyeing the project. 
Despite deep reservations, the author agreed to an option on his property. But when he read the proposed script, it indicated his worst fears. The first draft inexplicably injected the SS High Command into the plot. Furthermore, the British Royal Navy was replaced by US battleships. John Sturgis was set to direct with Robert Redford in the role of Captain Lehman Willenbrock. When that partnership foundered, in stepped Don Siegel with Paul Newman as the captain. But before there was a collective groan as to those casting suggestions, consider this performance. Once more, we play our dangerous game. A game of chess against our old adversary, the American Navy. For 40 years, your fathers before you and your older brothers played this game and played it well. But today, the game is different. We have the advantage. Now, it reminds me of the heady days of Sputnik and Yuri Gagarin, when the world trembled at the sound of our rockets. Well, they will tremble again at the sound of our silence. There were other ways in which Patterson was able to get the audience to, if not empathise with the crew, then at least appreciate their experience. His first decision was to portray Captain Lehman Willenbrock as a quiet, patient, understanding, almost pastoral figure who cared more for the safety and well-being of his crew than he did in killing the enemy. And in casting Jürgen Prognau in the role, he had an actor who met those requirements. And then, by easy and effective contrast, Pedersen made sure that the ship's first lieutenant is the film's only visible Nazi ideologue. If we didn't already notice this clean-shaven young believer played by Hubertus Bengsch not only clicks his heels and bows in a rigid manner, he is then portrayed as an inveterate snob, who, while the rest of the officers merrily slop down their meals, fastidiously picks his way about his plate, as if in utter disdain for the food he is being forced to eat. All of which gives us a figure to dislike and distract us away from whatever motivations and beliefs the other crew members may harbour. You'll see. We'll cut the swine to shreds. That is my firm belief. Listen to me, smart guy. He's a long way from shreds, Mr. Churchill. I'd like to know how many of his ships are getting through us. Right now, while we sit on our behinds, Waiting for orders. Our patrol planes, where are they? Answer that one, Herr Göring. The British have plenty of them. Talking big is all he's good for, that fat slob. Then Patterson introduces us to the minutiae of life on board in details we could likely never have imagined. Given that so many films had already been set on submarines, we dive at dawn, above us the waves, run silent, run deep, and the enemy below, to name just a few, we would have at least seen how tight the dimensions were. But Bochum's novel provides us much more insight than that. Firstly, with everyone living cheek to jowl, there is no privacy. And then there is the boredom. There is nothing to do except sit around and wait for something to happen. Aid to cleanliness. Four letters. There. Thank you. A desert animal with two humps. Camel. Perfect. 
Who outside of a U-boat would ever have known that when diving, en masse, the crew would have to race to the front of the boat to shift the weight, making the dive quicker? Beyond that, unlike British or American war pictures, no one is afforded the luxury of a freshly laundered and pressed uniform. Furthermore, the crew don't even bother to shave. Instead, they are constantly chewing on lemons to fight off scurvy. Although there was never a hint of homosexual encounters, with everyone sleeping in such close quarters, there is an outbreak of crabs. And perhaps just as bad, the bread is covered in mildew. Mildew is good for you. It's the next best thing to fresh grown lettuce. Almost all of that neutralizes the ideological differences most audiences would have had with the characters, and in its place, energizes our empathy because of their humanity. And that is an important lesson for any scriptwriter. A character is better defined not through their strength, but through their vulnerability. If audiences are allowed to see a character's weakness, we then know their limits. That limit is their emotional silhouette. And since we all have our own fears, it is by revealing the vulnerability that we can empathize with their experience. And that is how Pedersen eroded any lingering reluctance to care for the Nazi crew. Here is the director in 1982 being interviewed by David Childs at Imperial College London. Of course we had to go to research and things like that, but we have had all the time to advise us, old submariners, and they told us everything about this very strange, very strange world inside a submarine, what's going on with the engines and instruments and how to, yeah. to move and to yeah. walk, how to speak with the, with the orders, commands and all these things. So that was worthwhile and, um, well, I think it's, it's quite real what, what you see on the screen. And finally, in terms of the story structure, Pedersen made sure that the first engagement made at sea was not one where the U-96 was the pursuer, but rather the pursued which means that by the time the crew do locate a British convoy, we are so settled into identifying with them that the motivation for the attack is more self-preservation than ideological. And even then, when they do succeed in sinking the British tanker, little to no joy is expressed. Bear in mind also that this is the only time the crew's enemy is ever seen. Until that point, they were little more than pings and dinks, albeit near fatal pings and dinks heard through the submersible's iron hull. All of which means that when the officers catch sight of the survivors on board the sinking tanker, they are conflicted to see the British seamen leaping into the ocean to avoid the flames. They may want to launch a rescue, but they know there is simply not enough room on board. Which is to say, the real enemy is the ocean. That is how Das Boot worked, and while I have mentioned some submarine films that predate it, I want to end off by considering Das Boot's impact. I think the most obvious is Jost Vakano's Oscar-nominated cinematography. Much in the same way that Haskell Wexler's use of Garrett Brown's Steadicam in Hal Ashby's Bound for Glory forever liberated the camera, so did Vakano's development of the Steadicam help intensify movement. What Vakano had to do was race along the U-boat's tiny aisles and then through the narrow hatches, and yet keep the image stable. But because the average U-boat is no more than 10 feet wide, there simply was not enough space to operate the Steadicam. So Vacano created a gyroscope onto which he mounted the camera, and, well, that brings us back around to George Lucas. 
because for Return of the Jedi, that's how they filmed the speeder bike chase through the forest. Fittingly then, we leave the final word to Vacano, speaking here in 2010. When you really want to do something, you, you don't stop dreaming about it. And I realized after three, four weeks of shooting inside of the submarine that I got physically so much used to this surrounding. I got so much used to, uh, I could almost close my eyes and run through the ship because my body would know where to go. And that was finally the solution for this shot because I just grabbed the camera and started running. 